0: Family A family that's going on vacation, it's gonna be one of these long trips where they're traveling by car, and you know what a challenge that can be, especially when the children are young. I mean, even with all the wonderful technology where kids have these screens to keep them entertained with movies to watch and games to play, and yet having to sit in that car for hours and hours on end, the little ones get restless and antsy. So one of the things this family would do to help make the time pass by a little more quickly and to, To give the kids a break from staring at the screens, they would sing songs. Each member of the family would take a turn and pick a song, and then everybody else would join in and sing the song with them. Well, this family had a little boy by the name of Aaron, and it was his turn to pick a song. And Aaron said, I want us to sing the gravy song. And the father's thinking, "Uh, uh, hmm, the gravy song. I don't think I know that one. Are we talking about mashed potatoes and gravy, that kind of gravy? And the little boy said, yes. The father said, well, I, man, I don't think I've ever heard that song before. And, and Aaron, little Aaron, he says, yes, we, Dad, we sing this all the time. We sing it at a church. At church. Well, now the father's really curious, you know. Aaron, are you sure you know what you're talking about? I mean, there's a song we sing at church, a song that's about mashed potatoes and gravy. Yes, Dad, yes. We sing it every year at Easter. Up from the gravy arose. (laughs) It's cute. But that little boy missed the point. (laughs) That song has nothing to do with mashed potatoes and gravy. That song is talking about something much more important and much more profound. That song is celebrating the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and how that event changes everything about our lives. Well, the same thing can happen to us when we're reading through a book like Ephesians. Especially when you get to these last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Because many times in these last three chapters, here's the Apostle Paul illustrating, describing a principle called holiness. Now, he doesn't always use that word, but the idea, the concept is there. And yet here is a word, a truth that many of us misunderstand. I mean, we hear that word holy and many of us, we just immediately cringe. Because we're thinking of somebody self righteous, holier than thou, modern day Pharisee. Somebody's always pointing the finger at us and condemning us. Thou shalt not. Or we hear that word holy and we think of robes and cathedrals and monks and nuns. These people who dress in ways and live in ways that seem kind of strange and weird. So we get this idea that being holy means having to live a life where there's no freedom and no fun. It's just all rules and regulations. Now you have to live a life that is boring and drab. A life that has no connection to reality. No connection to the real world at all. But when we think like that, we're missing the point. That's not what the Bible means when it uses that word. In the Bible, anytime, anything, or any place, or any person is called holy, it means there's something new about that person, place, and thing. And what's new is how they are now tied to and connected with God. A change has occurred, a change that brings about something good and wonderful, a change that now makes everything about this person, place, and thing something so much better. And, and what's, what's better is the fact that now God is here. Now God is at work in this place. Now God is using this thing and using it in a glorious way. Now here is God working in this person's life and working in a way that's not only beneficial for them, but it's going to be beneficial for everybody else as well. Let me give you two examples, one from the Old Testament, the other from the New Testament, and to get this picture of holiness. And then I want to See how all of that fits in with this scripture that we're going to study today from Ephesians chapter 5. First of all, let's go way back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4. God appears to Moses, and he does it through a burning bush. You know, one day, here's Moses out in the desert. He's, He's watching the sheep when he spots something just out of the ordinary. Here's a bush that on any normal day looks like any other bush out here in this Sinai desert. I mean, there's thousands of bushes out here, and they all look the same. But on this particular day, here's a bush that now stands out from everything else because there's something happening here that's not happening anywhere else. This bush is on fire. But the strangest thing, though it's on fire, the bush itself is not being hurt or harmed in any way. I mean, here's a bush that is totally engulfed in flames, and yet the bush itself remains fully intact. And Moses is thinking to himself, I have never seen anything like this before. So he turns away from the sheep and he walks over to get a closer look. And as he draws near to the burning bush, he hears the voice of God. Moses, Moses, take off the shoes because this place where you're standing is holy ground. Holy. What makes this ground holy? Well, it's got nothing to do with Moses. Moses. It has everything to do with God. God is now here. God is now at work in this place. God is now taking a common bush that on any other day looks like any other bush out in the desert. And yet here is God doing something special and unique. Here is a bush that is now filled with fire. And yet it's not a fire that destroys and consumes. Instead, it is a fire that elevates... It transforms the bush. So now this bush stands out from all the other bushes in the desert in a wonderful and glorious way. Because now there's a light shining from this bush. A light that comes from heaven itself. And what God's doing in this bush is exactly what He's hoping to be able to do in the life of Moses. But before Moses can become holy, have a life filled by God, where it's now God's light shining through him, something has to happen. Remember, God told him, take off your shoes. What what is that all about? Well, the shoes represent what is man-made. Here's what humans can create. Here's what humans can produce. We can make shoes. Here's what people are capable of doing. But if Moses is to become who God wants him to be, he's got to take off the shoes and now stand on the ground what God can create, what God alone can produce. In order for Moses to become a man of God, from this moment on, he's got to learn to stand upon and totally rely upon what God's going to be able to create and produce in his life. You see, it's that connection with God that will change who Moses is. That's one picture of holiness. Here's another one. We find it in the New Testament, in John chapter 2. It's the very first miracle that Jesus performs one day in Cana of Galilee. Here's Jesus and his disciples. They're attending a wedding. And while he's here at the wedding, Jesus turns the water into wine. Now think about what happened there that day. Here at the wedding feast, you have these six containers, six enormous containers, six huge containers stone jars, each one filled with water, each container filled with 30 gallons of water. This is the water that people use to wash their hands. It's a ceremonial thing with these Jewish people. This now qualifies them to attend the wedding banquet. It now enables them to enter the other room and sit at the feast where they're going to be able to enjoy the food. So what's in these stone jars is not the kind of water you drink. I mean, it's flat, it's warm, it's, it's dirty. I mean, think of all these people who have been washing their hands. That's not something you want to drink. But then these six stone jars have an encounter with Jesus. And because of what Jesus does, a change occurs, a significant change. I mean, on the outside, they still look like the same stone jars. But now there's something new on the inside. Now, instead of being filled with something common and ordinary like water, now each one of these stone jars is filled with the finest wine in town, the kind of wine that brings joy to other people and fills them with the light. So here's this picture of holiness. It's not the pot, the container that counts. It's what's in the pot. So it is for us when you have an encounter with Jesus, when you enter into a deep, ongoing relationship with him, you may still look the same on the outside. But now there's somebody new living and working on the inside. And it's not going to be long before other people begin to notice, hey, what happened? Something different's coming out of your life. The way you talk, the attitude you display, the way you handle your problems, the way you care about other people. What happened to you? You're just different from everybody else. Who have you been in touch with? Who's got a hold of your heart? And the answer is Jesus. It's that connection with God who changes what we are. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Let's take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 8, from verses 8 to down to verse 20, the Apostle Paul is using all different kinds of pictures to point out a contrast. He keeps making one contrast after another, using different pictures to do it. And every time the contrast is the same, he's making a contrast between what we were, what life was like for us before we met Jesus, before we had any kind of connection to God, and then what life is like after we choose to live with Jesus. So look at the very first way he pictures this contrast. Look here in verse 8. He says, For you were once darkness, but now... Not the same anymore. Things have changed. Now you are light. And why? What brought about the change? Because now you're living in the Lord. Now you have this union with Jesus. Here's Paul. He's using a picture that you see all over the Bible. This picture of light and darkness, you see it on the very first page of the Bible, you see it in the very last page of the Bible. And you see the Bible using this picture 250 times in between those two pages. And why? Because here's a picture we can all identify with. I mean, even if you've never read the Bible, you just instinctively understand what the light symbolizes and what the darkness symbolizes. I mean, think about how we talk. We talk about living under a dark cloud. We talk about living in the dark ages. We talk about dark magic or the dark web or living on the dark side. And instantly, everybody understands you're describing something negative. You're describing something that can be evil, sinister, dangerous. You're talking about something that's not good for us. I mean, we even do this in our fairy tales. You never, in a fairy tale, you never want to turn off the lights. Why? Because that's the domain of the monsters. You turn off the lights and everything gets dark. That's when the monsters can come out of the closet and they begin to climb out from underneath the bed. Or you go out in the world of nature and you understand the wild things come out at night. When everything gets dark, that's when the predators begin to prowl. I mean, nobody has to tell you this. You just know being in the dark, that's not a good thing. And then you think about the way we use that word light, seeing the light, shedding light upon, seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And again, instantly, everybody knows you're describing something positive. You're talking about something that's good for us. You're talking about something that brings joy and hope. I love the way J.I. Packer, he wrote this classic book. Years, this is way back in the 1970s. wrote this classic book called Knowing God. Some of you are in the Colson fellows have been reading this book. And I love this analogy he uses right at the very beginning of the book. He says, imagine somebody who's uh, born and raised in the, in the Amazon. I mean, that's the only world that they've ever known. They're there down there in Brazil in the massive, that massive jungle. That's the environment that they're familiar with. But imagine you take that person. Now you fly them to New York City and you just dump them there. Now, for the rest of their life, they're going to spend the rest of their days here in the midst of all this noise and traffic and people in the midst of all these giant buildings. They don't know a bit of English. They don't understand the culture. There's nobody there to guide them and point out what is safe, what is not safe. And you're expecting this person all by themselves to be able to figure things out and survive. That's crazy. Or you do the very reverse. Think about somebody who's spent all their lives living in New York City. Now you fly them down to Brazil and you just dump them right there in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And, And they don't know the lay of the land. They don't know anything about all the predators that live in this place and how to keep yourself safe from them. You don't have anybody there to help you learn how to adapt to that environment. You expect them all by themselves to be able to survive in a world like that. That's crazy. Well, so it's crazy to live in this world without knowing one thing about the God who created this world and who alone understands how this world is supposed to work. I mean, that's like trying to walk around every day with a blindfold on. You're living in the dark. And the Apostle Paul says, take the blindfold off. Just as you instinctively understand, you know this, there's a vast, vast difference between light and darkness. Well, so you need to understand this. There is a vast, vast difference between living life with Jesus and trying to do life without him. Get out of the darkness and come to the light. Make that connection with God. That's why it says here, the latter part of verse 8... It says, live in the light. How do you do that? Well, verse 9, for the fruit of the light, in meaning is expressed by all that is good and right and true. But how do you truly understand what is good for you? And how do you learn to design, discern between what is right and wrong? And how do you make sure you don't get deceived and tricked and led astray by what is false? Verse 10, find out. That means dig deep. That means take whatever time is necessary to really check this out and try to learn what pleases the Lord. <laughs> you ever have one of those days you're driving, down the, you're driving down the highway and it's a gorgeous day outside. I mean, as you're driving down the highway, you're just surrounded by all kinds of beautiful scenery. And even though your eyes, your physical eyes wide open and you're looking right out the window, I mean, you're looking right at that beautiful sunset. You're staring right at that beautiful rainbow. And yet that glorious moment is making no impact upon you. It doesn't touch your heart in any way. Why? Because your mind right now is consumed with other thoughts. You're thinking about your boss, that remark that he made, that that, that insult he made the other day, that cutting remark that just took the wind out of your sails. Those devastating words just keep running around and around in your brain. How could he say that? Why would he say that? I mean, doesn't he appreciate who I am? Doesn't he understand how hard I'm trying to work, how hard I'm trying to be a part of this team? Or you're thinking about your neighbor and how the other day he tried to take advantage of you. Whoa, that just, where did that come from? I mean, I can't believe he would do something like that. We've been neighbors for years, living side by side, never done anything like this before. Why would he do, why would he treat me that way? And all these ugly scenes playing through your mind. And because of that, it keeps you from enjoying the view. It keeps you from seeing and appreciating all the goodness of of that which surrounds you. And why? Because your head and heart is now dominated by something else. See, the problem's not out there. It's in here. How do you change that? You can't. But God can. I would illustrate like this. If you're a fan of the Indianapolis Colts and you're watching one of their games, I want you to notice this. And, And some of you have before. While you're watching one of their games, I want you to notice our coach, Frank Reich. While the game's going on, he's standing on the sidelines, and while he's standing on the sidelines, you'll notice he's never standing there alone, never. Throughout the entire game, he's got a headset on, and throughout that entire game, he's talking to somebody else, and he's allowing somebody else to talk to him. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to his wife, talking to his kids? Is he making a call to a local restaurant and making arrangements for an after-game snack? No. No, I mean, while that game's going on, he is totally tuned in to what's happening there in the field of play. He is totally focused upon his team and how he can help them win that game. But what is it that's helping him to keep his focus? It's those people he's talking to. He's talking to the other coaches, the coaches he hired. The coaches he chose to connect himself with. The coaches who now sit up in the press box. The coaches who now have a much better point of view. The coaches who can see things he can't. While he's down there in that field of play, sometimes his vision gets blocked. And he doesn't understand, why didn't that play work? When he's down in that field of play, his point of view is just so limited. And Coach Reich knows if I want to coach this team well and help them win, I've got to have a better point of view. I've got to have that other voice in my ear constantly talking to me and telling me about the things I can't see. Well, Frank Reich is a Christian. And he knows that isn't just true for the game of football. That's true for life. You can't rely upon your own feelings, your own mood, your circumstances to give you the straight scoop about what this life is really supposed to be about. You can't trust your own eyes and heart to lead you in the right direction. No, you've got to have a better point of view. You need the light that only God can provide. You need God's truth in your ear because only then do you get the truth about life, a truth that will save you. And that truth is not just for me. That truth is for everybody else, too. Notice what the Bible says here, verses 11, 12, and 13. It says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Notice the emphasis is upon the deeds, not the people doing them. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but expose them. But you don't expose them in a way that humiliates the person. No, you want to help the person. You're exposing this. so No, that's not the best way to live. There's a better way to live. You expose them. Verse 12, it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light now becomes visible. It becomes clear to me and everyone else around me. Hey, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. Here's what's good for us. This is not good for us. And then here's the other benefit. Everything that is illuminated by the light, now it has an opportunity to become light too. Here's how I would illustrate it. I love Norman Rockwell. I love the portraits that he drew. I I could just stare at his pictures all day long. And the reason why is because, to me, there's always a message in those pictures. And here's one of my examples. Uh, He drew this way back in the 1940s, so I know this is dated, but but stay with me. Here is Norman Rockwell. Through this picture, he is reminding us of something very, very important. It's a Sunday morning church service. Here's a, a father and son standing together And you notice that they're dressed exactly like, they both got on the gray suits, they're both wearing white shirts, they both have the striped navy ties, they both have a white carnation pinned to the lapel. So it's clear from the picture, here's a boy trying to be like his dad. Here's a son trying to imitate his father, watching his signals, following his cues. But there's something more to the picture. Both of them are holding a hymnal, and they're trying to sing. But you notice the father, though he holds his hymnal with one hand, with the other hand, he's helping his son to find the right page. Make sure he's singing the right song so he can really enjoy this moment of worship. In other words, with one hand, the father's worshiping God, but with his other hand, he's helping his son to connect to the Lord too. And so with the help and influence of the Father, now the two of them, the two of them can stand together and praise God. Now, whenever I see this picture, it just brings a question to my mind. I begin to think, is my life, the life I'm living right now, the life I live in my home, the life I'm living here in this church, the life that I live here in this community, is my life helping others to connect to God? Is my life, the way I'm living my life, am I helping to draw someone else closer to the life and love of Jesus? Remember how Jesus taught this? Jesus taught us how to pray. And one of the ways he did that, he gave us a prayer. An actual prayer to use. And one of the lines in that prayer is this. May your kingdom come. And may your will. God, what you want, what you desire for us. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning... God, take what is true about heaven and make it real here in this world. God, give us a sample. Give us a preview of what heaven's going to be like by giving us a taste of heaven here on earth. How does that happen? Well, say I'm at odds with another person. A conflict has come up between the two of us. And whenever that happens to me, (laughs) got to be honest, my flesh, my sinful nature just takes over. It encourages me. Just hurt him, punch him, gossip about him, or just avoid him. Forget about trying to be their friend. You're never going to get along with somebody like that anyway. And then all of a sudden I realize, but that's not how they do relationships in heaven. So I have to swallow my pride and I have to pray, Lord, fill me with the life of Jesus. God, this this doesn't come natural to me. This is not something I can do on my own. God, would you help me so I can take the initiative? Give me the courage and the grace to go to that person, to approach them, and see if we can reconcile, see if we can learn to forgive and get on the right page. And every time I do something like that, I'm taking what is true about heaven and making it real in this world too. Every time I take a chunk of money and I I give it to another person, rather than just spending it all on myself, give it to somebody who's hurting and really in need, I'm taking what is true about heaven. And making it real in this world too. Every time you show the love of God. Every time you go out of your way to reach out to somebody who's lonely. You make sure you include them in the group. Every time you reach out to somebody who's down and feeling defeated. And you try to encourage them and lift their spirits. Every time you notice somebody going astray and wandering off and getting off the right track. And you you go out of your way to, to challenge them to get back on the right road. Every time you're doing one of those things, you're taking what is true about heaven and making it real in this life too. You see, when Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come. May your will, what you want, what you desire, may be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying every day, make it your mission, your aim, your prayer. God, fill me with the life of Jesus so others can see what he's really like. God, give us a taste of heaven here on earth. And that's what the Bible means when it calls us to be. Holy. Let's pray.